Hello, I'm Mary Sinanidis. Welcome to the interview. Australia's Greek Orthodox Church is planning a $27.5 million redevelopment of its Archdiocese on Cleveland Street, Sydney. Angelo Candelepis, no stranger to its pews since childhood, is the architect responsible for the restoration of the 1848 Heritage Cathedral. He'll be redeveloping a new theological college and museum and showcasing its layers of history and beauty. His interpretation of architecture has met with great success. The son of a migrant builder from the Peloponnese, he graduated in 1992, established his own architecture studio the next year, and by 1994 had already won his first competition for housing in the Point, Piermont. Since then, he's come a long way, from the Point at Piermont to Punchbowl's Mosque and residential projects that have changed people's lives. Throughout this time, prestigious national and international awards and accolades have been plentiful. And he's here with us today to walk us through his work and share his views on how architecture is more than just bricks and mortar. Welcome to our podcast, Angelo. How are you? Uh, I'm well. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. Um, Perhaps we can start at the beginning. Let's look at your childhood what were your aesthetic influences growing up? Did you grow up in a Greek-Australian household with doilies, tapestries on the wall, a veggie patch in the back, and maybe those Greek uh, columns that we're used to seeing? Well, I have to admit, my house didn't have Greek columns, but it was a traditional house, and um, we grew up with traditional values. My parents came to Australia in the 60s and um, I was born here uh, in Stanmore and then they moved to Campsie where they stayed for, they're still there. And um, we uh, grew up in a very traditional household with um, traditional values, um, connections to the church and an understanding of culture which um, developed uh, as I grew older, into something quite important. I don't know. I don't know about. I don't know about the doilies uh, <laughs> as being the prevalent thing in my uh, childhood, but they existed. And, yeah. Um, but so did grandparents living at home. So your yaya was actually in the, with your family in the family home. Both yayas. Okay. Both papolides at some point were living with us and. Um, they uh, formed an integral part of the broader uh, nuclear family. And as you could imagine, um, this was not uncommon uh, at the time. It's uh, something we all share, I think, uh, people of your age. We all have this same um, upbringing. And um, where were your parents from? What's your Greek uh, heritage? Where are your roots? They both come from the same village near Tripoli in Peloponnesus, so it's central um, mountain land. And uh, the village now is perhaps uh, occupied by around a 1,000 people, but at its peak was probably 2,500 people. And as was the case, opportunities were scarce, um, both in uh, the village uh, in the 50s and in uh, places such as Athens um, after the war. And uh, they came to Australia as a consequence of the hardship. Um, And people 
uh, recognised that many uh, many people that came to Australia, in fact, most uh, would be as a consequence of such hardship um, and trying to escape, as it were, yeah. uh, the difficulties of the other places um, in the world. And in fact, uh, in coming here, they found incredible. Uh, incredible opportunities that they could never have imagined um, in Greece. And I guess great opportunities for their children as well. So obviously a lot of the immigrants who came from the villages managed to educate their children and uh, were very successful. But growing up, was it a traditional, you said it was a traditional migrant upbringing, did you get to go to Greece much when you were a child? Not at all. Um, We didn't have the means to be able to travel because I was one of four children and we all were um, sent to mm. very good private schools. And my parents were preoccupied with um, the focus of education yeah. here in Australia and such that we could never really get to Greece. And it was very interesting um, when I finally uh, went to Greece at the age of 23 years old, um, 22 years old, um, in my final year at university, I came to recognise, in fact, that the values that my parents had put to us were values that had lapsed from the Greek populace, and it seemed to me that um, there was a kind of currency and relevancy in Greece that didn't exist in the minds of my parents. And that perhaps is um, something very familiar to us, uh, we, the children of the diaspora, um, who came who came to be uh, of an understanding through indirect uh, contact um, of a kind of difficult world in which our parents grew up. And we were given stories that were unknown to us other than through the storytelling at night um, of things that were parts parts of people's lives of great difficulty, of great hardship, of great fasting and um, poverty uh, and we always felt as a consequence that we were incredibly privileged to not be um, to not be um, our parents uh, and I think many people would have the same yes. um, recollection of growing up in households where the stories were kind of un- unreal in the sense that people were we were always kind of intrigued that our parents would have experienced such hardship but it's true true and Everyone, everyone in my generation grew up in that, with that sense of needing to, in fact, perform um, and deliver deliver something that our parents weren't ever able to. Which brings me to my next question: How did this heritage and hardship influence your philosophy as an architect? Well, I wouldn't call it a philosophy. I think it's just actions, in a sense, because the truth of it is that every part of what we do. As, um, as we are growing up, or every influence that comes to us affects the trajectory that we find ourselves in. And what's very interesting about that is that people oftentimes um, question, you know, is it nurture or nature? I think the combination of both is the truth somewhere in between. And when you have got this sort of sense of, Let's call it anxiety that the whole Greek populace that had migrated migrated here had anxiety that their next generation would be one which would actually make a difference. Um, I think that is embodied in a kind of DNA sense um, through uh, 
the dripping tap of uh, an awareness of the importance of that that our parents had um, and mm-hmm. imbued in us. And I think that that's, that's not just for me, that's for a significant number of people. And, and religion plays a major part in that because we always felt that there was a sort of um, uh, an application uh, to life that mm-hmm. uh, dealt with things we couldn't control as well. Yeah, we'll get to religion in a little while. I'd like you to um, tell me a little bit. I've heard you talk about a desire to leave behind a legacy and to create a lasting impact in the world. But we live in a fast food culture where people want instant gratification and time is of the essence. We're always in a rush. And it's very hard, I guess, to look at detail and pay attention to detail. And there's a tendency towards being risk averse. How do you manage to fight this tide in your work? Well, it's the perennial problem of people that care versus people that don't. And I don't think it's just uh, something that we could apply to our time. Uh, I, I'm reading presently a book called Minima Moralis, which is a sort of Latin term that talks about uh, the lack of morality in the 50s and 40s. And it's by an Italian uh, called Theodore Dorno. Um, and it's a very interesting book on philosophy because it basically shows reflections about that time, which dealt with uh, people's um, removal from the natural world. And that removal from the natural world is, world is the one that existed within our parents' lives, where, on the one hand, uh, people were coming out as the last vestige of feudal existence into the well-urbanised world. And they were the last people that did that, I think. And we are the result of that. And so we have our foot in both camps. We have our foot in a camp that understands uh, the consequences of not considering things wholly. And we also understand that the present world is one where uh, there's a a, a need for um, uh, what people crudely call monetising everything um, or the speed of things. My point of view, um, it isn't uh, progressive to uh, ignore detail. It's in, in fact counterproductive to ignore detail. And those that do are just going to come to naught uh, for society. But not everyone is able to contribute to society. Very few, in fact, do. And so those that are going to be attentive to detail, those that are going to have mm. a consciousness about um, slowing down and understanding the importance of considering what they're doing, and those people, I think, will, in fact, make a difference. Everyone else won't, and that's okay. Um, the difficulty, of course, is that everyone expects through their education that they will make a difference, but the truth is that they won't. Well, I've, I've heard you talk about the ethics of architecture and for you it seems to be a spiritual experience. Um, I don't know if you've ever read Henrik Ibsen's The Master Builder and Harvard Solness and who saw architecture as a spiritual challenge. But obviously when you make concrete dance and um, pour light into space, it does make you a little bit like a god, doesn't it? It's as philosophical as it is functional, isn't it? Well, there's a whole idea... Uh which is the philosophy of eschatology. And it's a beautiful philosophy about the ascension into a kind of godlike presence. That doesn't mean that we seek to be God. Um, that just means that we seek to be in the image of 
perfection. We never achieve it. In architecture, it's very interesting because architecture represents the work of people. And the work of people, if you are faithful and understand the sense of we are spiritual beings, um, the work of people is also the work of God. And within what we do is therefore an embodiment of something that can be spiritual if we tap into it. Many of us are kind of focused on, in fact, not understanding that. There actually, there's an intentionality to uh, ignoring it in the present world. And that's because it's very um, good for many people to not have that niggling consciousness about the uh, ethics of what they're doing or the uh, dimension mm. uh, of what they're doing, which has to do with an inner self, the self that they perhaps don't want to understand. But for me, I think it's vital. Um, and for me, it creates that sort of vitality that's necessary uh, to engage with the world in a way which is meaningful. Um, many people are just seeking to have happiness every day. I don't think that that's appropriate, actually, as a pursuit. Um, my pursuits are to kind of find meaning in what we do. And that's very hard because most people kind of run in the world in a way that struggles with that concept. Well, Archbishop Makarios said that the $27 million project, um, your upgrading of the archdiocese, will um, inspire all Greek Australians to develop and maintain a deeper connection to the church as well as to our ancestral culture, language and traditions. Do our buildings really have the power to influence our faith, to make us believe in God, um, or maybe even the opposite, to turn to crime? Or is that something architects just tell politicians to get funding? Well, let me have you close your eyes for a minute and imagine yourself in a room. Imagine that you are in a room which is totally white with celestial light coming in at the top. And imagine then how you would feel in that room if it were to be of a dimension that could give you comfort, of a dimension that didn't give you constriction. And now I want you to imagine yourself in a room which is a room that is held together one metre by one metre, one metre by one metre, half the size of the usual lift. And the door is locked and it's black with no light. Does that make you feel the same? Of course not. And what is it? Will it make well, me a better person? That's what architecture does. But will it make me a better person? Will it make me uh, more okay, likely we, we are, to behave we are in a way? From, we are people from moment to moment. And what makes good people is their behaviour. And if behaviour is affected by the spaces in which we sit, then it makes you a better person, doesn't it, to be in a good space? Mm. Because for that period, you are, in fact, behaving in a different way, which accords with uh, civility. True. Um, and, and, and so from my point of view, space and architecture affects people. The environment affects people. What people say to you affects people. And those that deny it are those that wish not to engage with the cultural dimension of what we do. And in fact, it's very interesting because um, all of us flock, don't we, to mm. the most beautiful towns of the world. In fact, we've made Venice into a circus as a consequence of how much we love the spaces of those streets. 
And what does that tell you about the power of architecture for people to behave in a way which embodies wellness? It tells you that, in fact, the streets in which we make, with which we make our cities, the spaces that our cities exist in, the rooms, a library is a place of quiet and consideration. A cinema is a place of entertainment. A theatre is a place of celebration and a place of intellectual exchange. These are rooms in our city. And whether we like it or not, and many people, particularly the development world, will like not to agree with me because it doesn't suit to say that, in fact, having a good work of architecture will create wellness for our city because it takes effort to do so. That's but true. And our cities... Effort, if it's a city, a city is a travesty yeah. of choices made by people who ignore this. That and we true. don't like our cities because our cities have been made into these compromises of um, aesthetic and spiritual dimension. Whereas in years gone by, people understood their duty to the world. But nowadays, it's all just—it's all just money. It's just, it's all just money. Oscar Wilde said that the wrong type of wallpaper um, could upset him more than losing a family member. Do you feel that way, or does that depend on the family member? Oscar Wilde had a lot of trite things to say about things, and it's unhelpful because he was quite a problem. He was witty, but what the wit gave us was the sense that what he was saying wasn't relevant, mm. and in fact, it was. But what he did, he made really important issues, such as one's environment and architecture, trite. So I, I in many, on many occasions, I'd have to say he was a bit of a fool, frankly. Um, but uh, he's a great person to quote because he's funny. It'd be like quoting um, you know, a comedian. Mm. And so for me, it's not philosophy to quote a comedian. Sure. But from my point of view, um, the, the discussion the discussion can be very serious and the discussion can, and, and there's a whole body of work that understands this. It's just that people in the mercantile world, I mean, you go to America and you see the significance of this issue in the streets, the dehumanizing efforts um, of uh, the urban streets in places like Houston um, are debilitating to the human race and yet it exists as a kind of um, phenomenon that people follow, uh, I think we have to be very careful to um, to not uh, ignore the signals that give us a sense of presence as people on Earth. You're very right about the gravity of this discussion and um, the constantly changing cities and, and the way in which we've got to, um, I guess, uh, proceed into the future in a very careful way. And looking at layers of buildings, let's look a bit at, at the Archdiocese again. So when colonial architect Edmund Blackett first created the Cathedral of the Annunciation for Our Lady, he had a particular function in mind. And um, so how can you change purpose and function but still respect the original architect's vision? How will you do this? Well, the first thing to say is that um, great architecture transcends its use. And people uh, walk into great buildings and they lose all their doubt about the, the supremacy of the human spirit. 
great building off of this. And his building does this to a degree. But in the context of Australia, it's to a significant degree. Mm-hmm. So when you grew up, did you go and visit this building regularly with your family? And how did you feel? Oh, yes. How did you feel as a as a young boy um, being in church? I always felt we didn't do the right thing by it. But who was I to say? And um, it's always that sort of that sort of thing that happens when you're a person that understands the artistic detail in things, uh, that one can stand in a space and say, oh, this is not good, or that's not good. And who was I to say to anybody at the time that I felt very uncomfortable about what had happened inside the building? And it's really irrelevant in a sense where you've got the context of migrants who have fought very hard uh, to achieve these things which are considered significant, such as uh, custodianship of the building, such as that. Which wrongs will you write? Well, air conditioning units on the sides, um, chandeliers that aren't necessarily in line. Um, there's a kind of sense of order of movement through, and the pavement outside isn't quite right. Um, there's just details, but everything that... I think we talked about detail. Mm. Everything that is in the realm of the spiritual is about subtlety and precision and detail. And that is the difference between art and just everything else. Mm. So um, if architecture has this kind of dimension of being artistic, then one needs to honour the detail. And I think in the Blackett building, there's a significant amount of detail that is dishonoured with the accretions that have been made over time. And these things are very pragmatic things, but nonetheless um, end up uh, affecting the importance of that interior. And it is an interior. The entire um, sense of having uh, a space place of worship is about what happens on the inside and then what exists in the threshold. Um, And what I've done is enabled a kind of a re-reading of that moment in the landscape that that building existed in um, 100 years ago, which was completely cut away by the railways in a callous moment, Mm. but a necessary moment for infrastructure, which meant that you could no longer look across a landscape into the threshold of the door from a distance and imagine walking in. And what we're thinking is that we do that to the side and enable the kind of re-reading of that in a way which is quite beautiful and similar and respectful of Blackett's intentions of creating a building in the landscape with an entry door that can be read from a distance. As an orthodox person, do you think you're better equipped to work on an orthodox building? I, I think of myself firstly as someone who believes in um, Christianity. And then I think of myself as someone who is an orthodox person that has come up through an uh, environment that is Greek Orthodox, both culturally and ceremonially. So um, do I feel better equipped? I feel, in a way, worse equipped because I have to unlearn the prejudices and feelings I have, and I have to understand the abstraction of what I'm doing in a way which is new. And I've had to decant all of that knowledge 
in a way uh, by by way of research of what it is that I didn't know because so many things uh, are there that I didn't know about that place. What have and you had to unlearn? What did I have to unlearn? I had to unlearn about what people do in the church and then relearn it. Um, for instance, I had to unlearn about uh, what happens behind the solaire or the um, or the, on the, at the holy table and beyond. I had to unlearn um, what is necessary in a church. Um, I had to unlearn also what the rituals mean and then learn them again so that I could then understand what his eminence, in fact, was talking about. And that's difficult because his eminence is a very sophisticated client. I wouldn't call him a client. I'd call him someone that stands beside me, holds my hand and helps me understand what it is that we are doing here. And for 50 years, I've known something different. And in this sense, I've had to unlearn many, many things. So are you dealing with his eminence or are you dealing with an institution? I'm dealing with both. You said in the past that it's difficult to work with institutions because they're stuck and risk-averse. Difficult but not impossible. And I think the lever that causes things to happen is the head of that institution. And if there is someone able and interested in a visionary insight about how we can be 100 years from now leading an institution, then that person is someone who can assist in that institution having that life. If all we're doing is looking at the past, then we can just be of the past. And that will be a dead institution. If we're looking at the future, then that will be an amazing institution. I gather that you've always been spiritual, but is this project making you more religious? No. I've always been religious. Yes. What about Punchpole Mosque? Did you need to study the Quran before undertaking the work? How did you manage, um, as a person who is a Christian and religious, how did you manage to um, work on that project? Because you, you did an amazing job. Well, I mean, that project is an important project because it has an understanding of history. Um, and history um, embodies a lot of things, not just our faith. Um, and I, in fact, got good counsel from Father Angelo at Bladesville about it at the time. And it's helpful to get information about what you're doing from other people because it's difficult to understand if whatever you're doing is right. Mm. And in creating that building, what I sought was those things that were essential about my own faith to be embodied in that building. But I have a I have a feeling that we all believe in the same God, these faiths. And in that sense, it wasn't difficult. The difficulty wasn't reading the Quran, which I did. The difficulty, actually, was understanding what to do 
in the context of the history of the making of mosques. And that was an architectural reading. That was more architectural than spiritual. But at the same time, what comes out of real architecture is this dimension of the spiritual. And I think we, we have to be careful to always seek to tap that, tap into that in the work that we do. There's a lot of people that don't want to engage in these discussions because they fear it might compromise their kind of um, sense of science or their sense of, let's call it, answers that they've made for themselves. Um, the better thing for me is always to not have the answers, to have doubt. And then when one walks into a space that one has been part of the creation of, because we don't even be part of creating these spaces, um, one can then have a sense that they didn't really, they didn't really design it. It was something else that caused things to happen. And that is a spiritual sense for me. Angelo, what was the space that you walked into when you were younger that made you say that you want to be an architect? Was there a space? It wasn't a space, no. What was it then? I, well, my father's a builder and I was very interested in drawing. I was interested in mathematics. I was interested in philosophy. I was interested in history. I was interested in English and communicating and I was interested in articulating those thoughts that I had, the visions in my mind of spaces and architecture and potential and things that caused me to get a sense of beauty in the world, such as the painting of Degas or the Impressionists that I was so incredibly influenced by. They have architectural space within them that causes me to, in a sense, have real fantasy about being somewhere that doesn't exist in the world. And having an ability to understand those things in three dimensions in one's mind about spaces that don't exist in the world is a really strong connection to having a vision to toward the future of spaces that might exist in your hands. And reading plans was something that I really loved. The two-dimensional abstraction of reading plans is something I really love, understanding how to walk through them with your mind. And that excites me. You see, it's like music for me. Beethoven never, in fact, heard the Ninth Symphony, but he wrote it. And for me, it's like drawing architecture. I am in the building when I'm drawing it. I'm in there, understanding how the space will be, and I understand the detail of light, the surface, the tension, the movement, the tension, of understanding uh, people next to me and also understanding colour and material. It's, it's definitely emotional. Hmm. Just before we, we round up, I just want to know a little bit about your space, where you personally live. What's your home like? What is it? You had absolute freedom. What did you do? Can you tell, first of all, can you tell about a person from the, from the home they choose to live in? Yes, of course you can. Of course you can. What does your home say? Um, well, you, 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 it's like saying uh, it shows judgment. It's like saying, can you tell about a person um, with what they wear? Can you tell about a person with what they say? And all of that is behaviour. And that behaviour is a language that we tend to ignore. And then we just want to want people to be different because they say things that make us feel comfortable. But the truth is, if you look around, you notice, in fact, that everything about them is like reading a book. 
the, the space I have is published uh, of my home is published in uh, a book that that is now um, and now out, and I reflect on that because in that I talk about how I made my home, and I talk about what pictures photographers have been able to take of it. And a sneak peek before, of, yeah, a sneak yeah. peek. Give us a sneak peek yeah. with your the words. Sneak peek is that it's a place of repose, a place of quiet, and a place of rest. And when I go home, I feel very comfortable about sitting in the spaces I've designed, looking at courtyards and looking at nature, but also understanding perfect proportion. Well, thank you very much for taking us to that place <laughs> and for sharing your perspective. My pleasure. It's My been pleasure. a pleasure speaking with you. And thank you. Thank you for asking me. I really appreciate it.